So what I'm going to do is talk a little bit of, mostly about similarity and particularly one aspect of my research um, on similarity-based cooperation um, and not really much at all about synchrony. So maybe some of you have come here to hear about synchrony. I'll be ha quite happy to, to um, answer any questions afterwards about that. We've done some research on rowing, for example, and also drumming in Brazil and how that might be associated um, with uh, pro-social behavioral effects and cooperation in particular. Um, but for today, and after some discussions also with people about what I might talk about, um, I decided to really just focus on some of the recent research that I've been conducting in Brazil. And that actually meant, I think about this time last week, I hadn't analyzed that data. So I sort of sat down last weekend, um, and I've got data to present that's fairly descriptive, um, and it's not maybe the most polished um, part of the presentation. But I thought this would be a great opportunity just to present it, and maybe we can have a bit of a discussion afterwards about that data. Maybe maybe you'll think I've sort of parsed it up and I'm looking at it perhaps the wrong way. So before I go too far down that road, I'd, re I'd really welcome feedback and comments on that. So um, just a brief brief outline of the talk. Um, so the, the work I've been conducting um, on, particularly it's on accent and race as a guide to children's social preferences, um, brings together, um, at least theoretically, it brings together some literature in, um, from theoretical sort of evolutionary biology. Um, and developmental psychology. And so I'll just briefly note some um, the relevant bits of the evolutionary biological approaches to um, similarity-based cooperation before moving on to, to look at the developmental psychology literature that inspired the research that I did in Brazil, um, and it focuses in particular on accent and race, or particularly really skin color preferences, um, and, and how those lead to um, social preferences in general as social markers. Um, and then the main part of my talk will be just sort of presenting some of this data that I've mentioned um, from the research program that I've been conducting in Brazil over the last couple of years or so. So what is cooperation? Well, evolutionary biologists would tend to define cooperation as any behavior that confers a fitness um, benefit on another individual, potentially sometimes at a cost to self. And so that raises, um, so by fitness I mean sort of reproductive benefit ultimately. So it raises um, a, an interesting problem um, from the perspective of evolution. How can this kind of thing evolve and be sustained in a population? Why would someone incur a cost um, to their self in order to um, provide a benefit to, to another individual in the population? And so it's been established that cooperation can only evolve and be sustained in a population if cooperators on average receive more net fitness benefits in return for their cooperation than non-cooperators do. So cooperation has to pay off in the long run and pay off over the, life, the course of the lifetime of the individual. And the principle by which this um, uh, uh, basic assumption is, is um, described is the principle of assortment. Um, so this payoff is achieved through the association between cooperators in a population and the cooperation that they receive from others. Um, so in social terms, this means something like the assortment of cooperators typically with other cooperators in the population. And so explaining cooperation, explaining how it can evolve and be sustained, um, is identifying those mechanisms that um, sustain assortment in a population. So various mechanisms are well known in the literature, well established, such as um, kin selection. So insofar as you're helping other members of the population who pretty much share your copies of your genes, you're really sort of helping yourself. Reciprocity, if someone cooperates with you, pretty good indicator that they're a good person to assort with. You might cooperate with them in return and thereby gain more benefits than if you were to act alone and isolated. 
um, reputation as well. So maybe you don't have any direct history with a particular individual, but you know that they're a good cooperator with someone else, or maybe you've even seen it directly. Um, and so that's another mechanism that can sustain the assortment of cooperators with cooperators in a population. If there's any kind of, um, if you sever that assortment and a cooperator ends up um, conferring benefits on a non-cooperator, that sort of behaviour isn't going to last very long. The non-cooperator is going to run off with all the goods and the cooperator is going to end up worse off overall. So what then about strangers? We know that humans cooperate with strangers um, in one-off um, sort of encounters um, in the absence of any potentially any reputation information. Um, they're not genetic kin, we don't know really much about them, yet we cooperate with these individuals and somehow um, it seems to be fairly stable in society. How has that evolved and how is it sustained? Well, there are lots of potential um, uh, and controversial and um, theories about how this sort of thing emerges and whether it's really a real phenomenon worth explaining in terms of um, evolved um, adaptations. Um, but strangers do present both rewards and risks. And so one mechanism that has been um, uh, looked at recently is the possibility that even in the absence of um, past encounters so, and any possible future or certain future encounters, so the absence of reciprocity, genetic relatedness or reputational information, maybe there's something, a system whereby phenotypic traits can guide um, assortment. So the individual bears some kind of trait, whether behavioral or... Um, uh, morphological, some kind of trait that you can say, ah, this is a person worth cooperating, worth cooperating with, and typically it's modelled in terms of, you have a trait that's similar to mine, so I'm going to cooperate with you and you're going to cooperate with me and anyone, anyone else who bears this trait. So these traits signal cooperative potential to prospective partners. Um, this theory has a fairly long tradition um, in the evolutionary biological literature. It's sometimes known as a Greenbeard theory, the new generation of um, theories um, that sort of have emerged from that um, are called tag-based theories um, or similarity-based theories. And there's been loads of um, research look looking at the various kinds of conditions under which cooperation among strangers can evolve that's fully contingent on the ability to discriminate among tags and to condition one's cooperation um, on other individuals who have the same tag as you do or who, are, who fall within some kind of similarity tolerance zone um, that's set at a particular threshold. Okay, um, that's all the sort of um, heavy theory stuff in a way. There's a little bit more. So this is just, um, you know, for any of those here and stuff, we have to send this slide. There's a lot more. This is just a subsection of the kind of work that's been done over the last eight to ten years in the theoretical evolutionary biology literature on tag-based cooperation or similarity-based cooperation. But typically, they come to the conclusion that it's very unlikely that this explains cooperation in humans in, in the form of a genetic model. So a genetically conferred trait and a genetically conferred contingent cooperation <coughs> behavior, typically they would have to be very, very closely linked for this to be um, uh, possibly sustained in a population. Once you take that link apart and you have the possibility for, say, a mutant in your population who bears the trait but doesn't actually behave in the right way, then the whole assortment thing is going to come unraveled and that free rider will take over the population of, of tag-contingent um, tag cooperators and the whole thing will collapse. It's possible that um, tag-contingent cooperation can emerge again because ultimately cooperators will do better insofar as they can assort um, than free riders because um, they have reproductive advantages from their cooperation. 
Um, but ultimately, it's a very unstable sort of mechanism. And genetically, it's probably not anything that would explain human cooperation. Um, okay, so at the end of these, um, these very theoretical mathematical papers, most of which I don't understand, um, there's often a comment um, about the possibility that humans, um, although not guided by genetically encoded traits, they might be guided by cultural tags or traits. So we have all sorts of things that we anthropologists would typically call social markers um, that seem to channel our cooperation and our social assortment um, in everyday life. And these markers are acquired um, culturally. They're sort of um, non-randomly distributed across sort of groups in the population. Um, and they guide our coordination and our cooperation, it would seem, um, quite frequently. So possibly there are cultural tags, um, if not genetically coded tags, that could guide cooperation in a similar way in which these um, theories could model. Now, this is usually just some sort of hand-waving comment at the end of these papers. Um, without much um, insight on how cultural tags might be acquired, um, often they would point to the possibility, and often they would suggest that maybe linguistic tags, so lots of tags can be acquired extremely cheaply, so they're not particularly reliable tags, and you might have this, this possibility of this, a, a similar mutant situation where someone can acquire the tag, like say, I don't know, the modeling scarf, and thereby be granted access to modeling and all the fitness benefits that that might, that that might um, confer. But no, it doesn't work that way. It's got to be a reliable tag that you can't acquire for 30 quid down the shop. So most of those anthropologists or evolutionary anthropologists come back and say, well, talk is cheap, and so is hair dye. Cultural tags, they just can't, they, they can't sustain this kind of cooperation. They serve to coordinate individuals, to learn the kinds of norms that matter in, that, in their particular society. So they tended to dismiss this possibility quite readily. Others have come back. I wondered, well, really, is that the case? This tag, you know, linguistic tags, they're not the same as everything else. They're not all cultural, social mar socially acquired cultural markers are created equally. Um, I actually have a friend who told me, just out of the blue, he bought this last week, <laughs> and uh, it didn't work. Okay. <laughs> as we might expect, that this can work. But anyway... Um, so here's one particularly extreme example for linguistic markers. I can't pronounce the name of this group. Maybe there's someone here who can with their clicks. Oh, fantastic. There we go. So that, um, that group speaks, um, just a few thousand of them uh, in Botswana. They have a blistering array of unusual sounds. Um, the vowels of this language include plain, blah, 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 four different kinds of vowels, each of which carry four different tones, five basic clicks, 17 accompanying ones. The leading expert, Tony Trail, presumably he was learning it as a second language learner, developed a lump on his larynx from learning to make their sounds. I don't know about you. <laughs> um, further research showed that adult speakers had the same lump, but it's obviously it develops through ontogeny. Okay? And I realise in hindsight this is not perhaps the, the best picture. Um, to describe. This is not the lump. <laughs> um, so this is a particularly extreme example um, of the kinds of complexity that... Um, uh, can be acquired in language through our very sophisticated vocal imitation um, capacities as humans. It's not just um, uh, our vocal imitation capacities that lead to accent um, uh, being hard to fake. It's not just a hard to fake trait, but it's also a very salient trait. I mean, obviously, language is ubiquitous and um, it's a very important part of social interaction. So it's also a very hard to hide trait. 
Another um, interesting um, uh, property of accent is that it is a property of the individual. So in terms of specifying um, the preconditions for accent to emerge as a tag on which cooperation could be contingent, um, you don't need to specify that it's a group trait, so you have to have these kinds of social groups in the first place um, that then kind of um, propagate these social markers that um, delimit boundaries. It's a property of the individual, and normally linguists would describe this as, um, you know, they talk about these levels of language, although it's hard to define the boundaries, you've got a linguistic boundary, um, a, a dialect boundary, a sociolect, so different sort of age groups or whatever within a, within a particular um, society, right down all the way to the individual's idiolect. So it's a property of the individual. Um, imagine if that was non-randomly distributed. It's not. These, we find that language and dialects and sociolects and idiolects are sort of nested within one another. So that you can compare this property across a continuous dimension. But it's only comparable insofar as you can discriminate the differences. And it seems that we're very good at discriminating the differences in different accents, particularly in those accents that are closest to us, those accents to which we have considerable exposure. Um, in terms of the evolutionary sort of startup costs, maybe it didn't cost anything. Maybe it was just something to do with the um, additional um, encounter of strangers that could have activated this as a possible uh, mechanism for assortment. Um, because insofar as you have language already, um, accent sort of piggybacks for free on the back of language and language variation. Um, also, in terms of development, it's very cheaply inherited. Um, so we know, sort of, linguists talk about. Um, uh, so uh, the development of, of language is kind of natural. Compared to the second language learner, it's very easy for a child to pick up a language. And in so doing, it picks up its accent for free. Um, linguistic variation, it's also very dynamic. Um, all the causes and so on of the sort of variation across space and time of language haven't been well identified in the whole explanatory um, uh, mechanisms kind of laid out, but we know that they're it's extremely dynamic. And this is an important um, point from the more theoretical aspect. It's important that accent or this tag is not just um, honest and hard to fake, but also that it changes over time and sort of stays ahead of copying free riders. You can imagine it in terms of sort of an arms race of people sort of delimiting their boundaries in a sort of group model and others try other interlopers trying to get in. Um, and so it's important that accent is dynamic. It's also important that you don't sort of reach fixation where everyone sort of shares the same tag um, and there's no grounds on which to discriminate amongst individuals and thereby assort anymore. Um, it's also ancient. It's probably as old as we would have needed it in order to assort with strangers. Um, but it's, it's also maybe important to mention that it's not necessarily contingent on the emergence of full-blown language. So um, by accent, I sort of mean variations of prosody and rhythm and stress, intonation. Um, that, all of that could have, have pre-existed before sort of full-blown complex um, propositional language, as we might see in other species, just with their vocal imitation capacities. A lot of work has been done, um, for example, in birds, um, killer whales, dolphins, bats. Um, on and sort of mapping the vocalization variety across these species um, and within the species. Universal, everyone has an accent, even though you might not think so. Um, and as I said, it's present and widespread in other species. So these are just lots of um, possible 
uh, sort of interesting, relevant um, properties that accent might have that um, would say that maybe it's a little different from hair dye and cheap talk. Um, but how is it actually used? You know, so um, it might have all these properties, do we, but do we actually use it as we might expect in a sort of tag contingent cooperation um, model? Um, most of the sociolinguistic um, research, I think, safe to say, has been conducted with um, Western populations, um, and less so um, sort of uh, cross-culturally. But I, I think that most anthropologists who've done field work and had to learn the language of um, their friends in the field would have a lot of experience as sociolinguists of what it means to speak in a different sort of way. So I would really welcome um, any comments that you might have, even anecdotally, as to how people sort of react to the way you talk um, when you're in the field. Um, but a brief sort of um, perusal through HRAF. Uh, they, they, there's quite a bit actually on accent, dialect, and so on. Um, so if there are any students out there who are interested in doing a bit of survey, this kind of thing, that's better than this one. But um, I, you know, well, I'd like to hear from you. But this one is just a, bit, a few cherry-picked examples. What did I do? Oh. Okay. Um, so Laycock is noted for the the Sepik region, which is known to have you know vast. Um, really high degree of um, linguistic variation. It's been more than once said to me around here that it wouldn't be any good if we all talked the same. We like to know where people come from. So accent is this in indicator of sort of social origins. Virtually all of Papua New Guinea people pay very careful attention to small linguistic differences in differentiating themselves from their neighbours. Um, and among the Bugisu of Eastern Uganda, within language variation provided the main criteria for the perception of cultural difference, including variations in very minute distinctions between the speech of subclans and then I thought this is a really nice um, way of sort of, this is sort of local, non-Western sociolinguistics in a way. Sort of, linguists typically have a very difficult time um, identifying boundaries, as I understand. I'm not a linguist, but as I understand, it's very difficult to identify these linguistic boundaries that they talk of. And here's one way to do it. Speakers in parts of West Africa characterize degrees of linguistic difference according to the period it takes to establish easy communication between related forms of speech. For example, the speech variant of an adjacent village may be described as a two-day dialect, and that of a more distant village is a five-day dialect. So that's how long it takes you to tune in and be able to be comprehended and to comprehend other people. It takes exposure, ultimately. So another thing, you know, we noticed that it was um, accent is... Um, and accent use um, is universal um, and ancient, um, but it also develops very early in childhood. Um, it's typically children whose parents and peers speak in different linguistic varieties pick up the variety of their peers. And I've seen this with my niece and nephew, um, who have moved a couple of years ago from Mexico to Scotland. Um, and you know, my sister obviously has a Northern Irish accent, a bit like me. And Tabitha has recently started school, and Oscar stays at home. She goes to school with a bunch of Scottish kids. Um, and if you ask her what language she speaks, she says Scottish. Um, and Oscar um, would stay home most of the day with his Northern Irish mom. So here, listen, have a listen to how they talk. Hi, my friend, Oscar. Hi, Oscar. Hi, my friend, Kai. Okay, and by her little at the end, um, I don't know why this is turning off the way it is, <laughs> but um, you can tell she seems to know the if difference. People are different. It's okay before they kick off. Um, so she's obviously 
the typical sort of interpretation of what's going on in here is that she's sort of fitting in, she's conforming to the environment that sort of really matches to her socially. And why not? If you don't, this is what happens. It's like you don't have you don't have to make fun of them. Yes, like people make fun of me because they have a funny accent. <laughs> 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 it's, it's really not fair, is it? But, um, does this happen a lot, a lot? You know, how systematic is this? Is accent special, um, or is it just one other cultural tag? Well, some, recently there's been some really interesting research done, I'd probably describe it as developmental sociolinguistics, um, by someone called Catherine Kinsler, who's based in Chicago, and colleagues. Um, and they've looked at the um, sort of the, uh, children's social preferences, particularly their friendship preferences, and how they're guided by linguistic um, uh, and other um, social markers. And in the first study, so she typically would present um, these five-year-old children, white children from monolingual families, that becomes important in a moment, um, and she would present them with uh, a display of two, two individuals, so photographs of individuals' faces, um, and each individual would say something, and then afterwards the child is asked, who would you like to be friends with? Uh, and there would be a series of trials, and then she would take you know, their mean result. And so here are the first, quickly, just the first two, um, the first set of experiments where she compares native language, so um, American English, with a foreign language, which I think was French. And she asked them, who would you prefer to be friends with? And these five-year-olds um, typically and significantly um, preferred the native um, language speaker. And then she compared native accent and foreign accent. Um, so you'd think both comprehensible, um, who will they prefer? And they actually also showed a, a preference, significant preference for the native-accented speaker. That raises the question, well, maybe the foreign accent wasn't understandable to them. So these two experiments are pretty much sort of equivalent, and the results are equivalent. And so she, she presented them with foreign-accented individuals and foreign-language individuals and asked them, who do you understand? And this is the results she got. They understood the foreign accent um, over the foreign language. And then she presented them with foreign accent and foreign language again. And, so these are all different groups of children, by the way. Um, and asked them, who would you prefer to be friends with? And find no difference between the foreign accent and the foreign language speaker. So it seems that comprehensibility or comprehension doesn't predict um, friendship preferences. It needs to be a, um, a native variety of the language. Is accent special? In a very interesting set of experiments, she um, presented the children... Um, with, again, two photographs, one of a black person and one of a white person. Again, these are monolingual white children, all five to six-year-olds from Chicago. And ask them who would they prefer, and they typically, this is very common, they typically would prefer the, the white individual, showing a, a very common white bias. Um, and then she paired the black individual, another group of children, she paired the black individual photograph with native-accented speech. And she paired the white individual with foreign-accented speech, and she found a complete switch in the preference. So the accent um, trumped or overrode um, the colour preference here. And she thought, well, maybe they're more familiar with racial variation than they are with accent variation. So maybe um, race is just um, something that they're prepared to sort of allow to be overridden by something that's um, uh, a little more... Um, no, accent is something that... Race is a bit more common and accent's not. And so maybe if she presented them with a weird sort of face, 
um, that that would override any accent preferences. So she actually distorted her face to make this a very unfamiliar physical um, stimulus and looked to see the preference. And again, in the silent, as you might expect, they didn't like this distorted sort of almost mini Frankenstein face um, compared to a typical face. But if you pair a distorted face with a native accent and a typical face with a foreign accent, again, the native accent trumped um, the, the distorted face. So there seems to be something really special about accent that hadn't really been picked up before in the developmental social psychology research. Um, and so along with other markers that have been shown to be extremely important, pillars of children's social world known as uh, such as sex, gender and, and obviously race, um, she's added language and particularly accent to that list. Okay. Um, she goes on then, and this is where it connects back up with the evolutionary biology literature. She goes on on the basis of this to say that social preferences and reasoning based on accent may have origins in cognitive evolution. And given the speed and flexibility with which languages and accents evolve over very short temporal and geographic spaces, the difficulty of acquiring a non-native accent in adulthood, accent may have been a reliable cue to group membership, not only in the modern day, but also throughout our evolutionary past. Further, cognitive evolution may have favoured attention to accent over other social variables such as race that would not likely have differed to the same extent across neighbouring groups and Asian societies. And so she puts forward this proposal that natural selection may have favoured social attention to accent in a way that it did not for race. Okay. <clears throat> so how might that work? It's a fairly vague proposal. And recently, this paper has been published, hot off the press, current anthropology that looks at that, but I'm not going to look at that today, so you can have a look if you want. Um, I think that there are several research questions that emerge from this, um, and uh, the most obvious one is to what extent do children from monolingual families in Chicago represent humans cross-culturally for most of their history? Um, perhaps in most other audiences, no, but I think here that's a rhetorical question, so I'll not really go into it much further. Um, there are many sources of social environmental variation, such as uh, multilingualism compared to the monolingual background in which she um, conducted her research, um, variations of racial heterogeneity, heterogene, heterogeneity and, and homogeneity, and also ethnic, um, so how that maps on um, to more political divisions, if at all, um, the mode and salience of these markings, also group size, group stability, migration, linguistic exogamy and, and um, uh, isolation, drift and so on. All these kinds of factors that might influence um, the, the linguistic environment and the social environment and the connection between um, uh, language-based preferences and social preferences in um, the development of children. Um, <clears throat> another question that arises, you know, she used foreign accent comparisons, but in, in the interest of looking at sort of perhaps more natural um, accent variation in, in sort of naturally occurring social worlds, maybe um, something like a regional variety um, might be more illuminating. Foreign accent might capture um, sort of something to do with group dynamics or self-similarity comparisons, but there could also be, a, children are very attentive to um, variations of confidence and reliability um, and niceness and honesty and lots of other markers when they're learning and making social preferences in regard to, to adults. And finally, um, she noted that um, she, she demonstrated that children have um, accent-guided social preferences and friendship choices, but does it also guide cooperation? Does it guide um, costly cooperation? Okay, 
So on to the next bit of my talk. Um, and this is the research that I've been conducting in Brazil, and it's multi-sided research um, that we've conducted across um, four different Brazilian times, looking at friendship and sharing preferences in five to ten-year-old children. I don't know how well this will come out, but this is a bit of most of Brazil. Um, and I've been working in Brazil in this part up here um, for ten years now. Um, first went out in 2002 to the city of Belém, which is right up here, sort of at the mouth of the Amazon. And there's a big landmass here called Marajó, which means barrier to the ocean. Um, and that's where I've been conducting a lot of research recently. Um, okay, so this particular um, study uh, we conducted in Cachoeira do Arari, um, also in Ulianopolis. And then these span two states, I think the second largest and the third largest in Brazil. So this is the state of Pará and the state of Mato Grosso, um, Canarana, and then uh, Jauru, which is almost on the border with um, Bolivia. And just a little bit of information on our four towns. Um, we selected them, as you will see. I don't know how clear this is, um, but we selected them because they vary on a, a dimension that is of particular interest for doing the kinds of studies that um, Catherine Kinzer did in Chicago. Um, Cachoeira do Arari um, is a typical town. Um, it's an old town um, that, is that was established on an ancient pre-colonial site. Um, and it has one dominant accent. Um, Ulianopolis, on the other hand, and in fact all these three towns are fairly new towns, and these emerged um, in since around the 1960s, um, subsequent to um, President Kubitschek's um, sort of regeneration of this whole region. Um, he was president between 1956 and 61, and he established two major sort of roads that that led from central Brazil. Um, and his new new town capital, the federal state capital of Brasilia, um, right up here, so from around here, right up here to Belém, um, and another trans-Amazon highway, they're called right across to Acre as well. And he created all sorts of incentives um, to bring people in from all over this much more highly populated part of Brazil into the Amazon region at that time. Um, to farm the land, basically, um, and the land was going pretty cheaply. I think there was even, I think there was even free land up to um, 100 meters from um, the highway. So the whole margin of the highway um, was was free to new settlers. And so these times emerged from that time, and they still attract a lot of new a lot of new um, immigrants. Um, Ulianopolis, as you can see here, we actually we tried to maintain. When we were choosing our times, we tried to maintain the size of the town constant. But at the time, our figures were based on the census um, data from 2000. And just recently, the 2010 census data have come available. Um, and so, as you can see here, Ulianopolis is at 43,000, and Cachoeira is at 20. They were all in around about 20 when we made our, when we, when we made our selection. So Ulianopolis has actually increased... Um, it's doubled um, uh, in the last 10 years, so it's still attracting a lot of people. But I think that's actually going to tail off now because um, there's been a lot of, um, it seems, illegal logging in that region. It's right up at the frontier with the um, virgin forest. Um, and there's been a lot of legal logging and a lot of these um, logging industries being closed down recently. Canarana, um, 
has a population of 18,000. It's um, known as the gateway to the um, Shingu Indigenous Park, which was also established um, uh, at the time of all this regeneration. And you can see, I think it's this um, green region here. And this region has been left sort of untouched um, and is a sort of protected area for um, indigenous people. Um, a little bit of history as to how I selected these times. I hope it's time for this. But um, when I was interested in looking at the effects of multilingualism originally on children's developing social, linguistically guided social preferences, um, I had intended to go to this park and work with various groups there and also look at the the relative effects of linguistic exogamy versus endogamy and, and um, the, the various effects of um, uh, hostile or um, agreeable sort of relations between different groups. It proved quite difficult. I knew it could have taken up to two years to get a permit, and after two years they might have said no. Um, so I decided to go ahead um, with a different plan. It was Plan B at the time. But as it turns out, when I went to Kanarana to talk to people there about this possible research, this must be about two and a half years ago or so now, um, I was just sitting around sort of chatting with various school teachers and so on, um, and I asked them about all the different languages in Kanarana. I said, you know, maybe if I can't get into the Shingu Park, maybe Kanarana would be a great place to do this research because it's so cosmopolitan, it's so multilingual. Because it's the gateway to, the, to this park, there are lots of um, uh, indigenous groups, um, people from indigenous groups who live there sort of temporarily and children who are schooled there. And so we talked about that a little bit, and then someone said, well, do you know what's really cool about this place is that because it's a new town, we have all these different accents. Um, so it's really sort of heterogeneous in that regard. And I thought, well, that's even more perfect, actually, because I want to look at accents specifically. So that's sort of how this came about, um, and that's how I then looked up these other new towns. So it's, a he it's heterogeneous in accent, as is Ulianopolis, and then Jauru is uh, homogeneous in accent. And it's actually decreased in population since we... Um, uh, since the original census that we used, really just to give you a little, a little gallery um, sense of these places. Cachoeira keeps afloat economically mainly on fishing. Very poor region. Um, I think, well, the unemployment figures are through the roof in this particular region. Um, and we would, for, one, for a single study, um, we would typically, on any visit, I would typically spend about four to six weeks, and I've probably been to Cachoeira uh, maybe four or five times. So we can pick up all sorts of tips on how to make boats and how to fish prawns. Um, this is the school that we worked in there. <coughs> so Andresa, my research assistant and coordinator out in Brazil, um, she would run the studies with the children as a native-accented speaker. Um, and I would uh, sort of hang out with the kids and, and gather them up um, and gather up their participant consent forms and so on. Uh, this is Ulianopolis. You can see maybe right in the background there the forest. You know, they're right up against the forest. This is a typical sort of scene, just wood everywhere, timber everywhere. <clears throat> and this is the school that we worked in there. This is Andres again, and these are the, we would always um, get consent from uh, parents and only work with the children whose parents had read and understood a bit about the research and had signed to give consent. <coughs> Canarana has a very sort of, it's right in the centre of Brazil, it's really sort of, it, but it's got a really sort of wild west feel to it, it's um, sort of farming country. Um, and we would stay normally with these, this um, teacher in one of the school and his wife, 
and this is one of the school directors here. <coughs> and that's the school that we worked in in Kanarana. And then Jauru, sort of composed of three main streets. Um, <coughs> and it's the town, the smallest town, 10,000. Um, and that's the school we worked in there, one of the teachers. And at the end of the day, the, the um, participants in our research would always get a little bag of sweets or something to take home. <coughs> so our first study looked at um, sharing preferences. So the setup was like this. The children would be um, sit in front of the computer, and there would be two individuals displayed on the computer, distinguished only by t-shirt color and accent. Um, and one would speak in a non-local accent, one in a local accent. Um, and I'll explain the sharing setup in a little moment. So there was local Portuguese, uh, Madeira and Portuguese. Madeira was chosen as the variety of regional Portuguese um, that was most dissimilar from the local port from Brazilian Portuguese, according to linguistic analysis. Um, <coughs> it was between Madeira and the Azores, so it was a very tough decision. I set off to Madeira and got my Portuguese phrases recorded there. Um, and uh, we wanted something that was unfamiliar to the children, but still first language Portuguese. You know, I think a next step would be to look at sort of familiar varieties that already have perhaps stereotypes and so on attached to them. Um, here we have our sharing setup. So the children make a choice between two um, options, and they show that choice by sort of touching the card on which the options are displayed. I want this one or this one. And here they can choose um, to have one suite for themselves and at the same time give one suite to the person who speaks the non-local accent, or they can choose to have one suite for themselves and one suite to the individual who speaks the local accent. So they get the same thing, and the question is whether they pay any attention to who's talking at the other side of the table. So <coughs> the kinds of phrases um, that would, would be said are basically neutral phrases like, oh, when I'm hungry I like the smell of food, but also some indication that they might like sweets as well. <coughs> And we would give the children lots of training in this particular procedure. We would ask them afterwards some questions just to make sure that they paid attention to what they'd heard. You know, when he's hungry, he likes the smell of food or the taste of food. Um, and just make sure they paid attention. And then we had a final attention filter where we asked them, how many children did you meet today? Um, because the, the puppets look very similar across the different rounds, and we wanted to make sure that the children knew that they were unique individuals in each round. Um, and according to that filter, we then eliminated some children from analysis who, who, who got the answer wrong. Um, any questions about this bit? We started with puppets because we could have a lot more control and there's been, um, there's, there's, I'm sort of taking my cue from developmental psychologists here that a lot of the research conducted would suggest that it doesn't make much difference whether you use puppets or photos of real people. And so puppets were deeply different. Well, it would be worth following up, perhaps, to see if real people, if it would make much of a difference. But for the sake of um, uh, uh, economy and efficiency, in this first pass, um, we decided to use puppets because we would have to do all, all kinds of pre-rating on photographs for attractiveness and other, and other aspects. And as I got on to later, we were looking at race as well. And attractiveness and race confound one another in this setting. So we started with puppets, and perhaps if we hadn't found anything, um, I guess we'd be interested then to see whether, well, is it just because we've used puppets? Um, uh, we also had a selfish uh, option. You know, they could um, choose two suites for themselves and giving one to the non-local accented individual, 
or um, one sweet and giving one sweet to the local accented individual. So would they forego an extra sweet in order to ensure that the local accented individual um, got something? And then finally, a friendship question. Which one would you like <coughs> to be friends with? Again, this is just the, the sort of setup that we had, and each time they would choose their um, card, we would pop the sweets that went to the other individual into a little bag that was color-coded with the, uh, the individual's T-shirt. <coughs> and so in the final analysis, we had 286 children um, between ages of 5 and 10. And in the sharing, we find a significant but not very strong um, preference for the local accent in the all-equal round. So 57% of children, um, this is a frequency measure, there was just one um, trial, 57% um, chose the local accented, um, the, the option that would give the local accented individual something. But they were selfish. <laughs> um, there was no local accent preference in the one in which they could get either two or one. So they chose the, the option that got them two sweets. <laughs> no surprise there, really. Friendship, um, there's a significant preference, very similar actually, 58% for the local accented individual. <clears throat> it's interesting to look at the results then by site type. Oh, that's a bit low, sorry. Um, um, in the sharing, um, as in the friendship actually, we find that it's only in the multi-accented sites that there's any preference. In the other, in the mono-accented sites, um, there's no preference, they're at, they're at chance. And so that raised the question, well, do the individuals across, do the participants across these sites um, actually perceive the differences in these accents? And so we ran a, just a discrimination, an accent discrimination um, task where we had the same stimuli <coughs> and just three straight questions that we counterbalanced in order. Which one speaks more similarly to you? Which one speaks more differently from you? And which one isn't from around here? And here there were quite interesting results. There was a significant effect of site type. So the accuracy, <coughs> we took a mean score and out of three, um, in the multi-accented sites, the mean score was 2.02, which was significantly above chance. But in the mono-accented sites, they weren't significantly above chance at any age group, even up to the 9 and 10-year-olds. They didn't discriminate between these two different accents. To me, I mean, it's a very obvious contrast. Um, and so, um, yes, I think that's quite interesting. It, it's interesting to note also that the 7 to 8-year-olds in the multi-accented sites did discriminate between the two different accents, but they didn't show a friendship preference or a sharing preference. So discrimination emerges before the social preference emerges. <coughs> so a quick summary of that. We noticed a, a local accent weak, but it's there. Local accent preference overall. But by site type, it's only children from the multi-accented sites that prefer the local accent to speaker and sharing and friendship, which I think contrasts with the Chicago um, children, arguably, if you consider the Chicago children not to be as, um, as exposed as our children to linguistic variation. Um, and the children from multi-accented environments discriminated among accents more accurately. And so the significant local accent preference in these um, various choices in the multi-accented sites may owe at least in part to a more sensitively tuned ear for accent variation. So even though it's an unfamiliar accent, um, they still do a better job because they have more exposure to accent variety in, in, in their locale. But just because they can discriminate, that doesn't necessarily suggest that they should go one way or another in preference. So it doesn't need to lead to preference, and the preference of the older children in the multi-accented sites suggests that experience of accent variation doesn't only tune their ears, but also makes accent relevant as a cue to assortment in their environment, as a cue to social preferences. 
So then we looked to see, well, is accent special? Does it override skin color preferences? <coughs> um, so our sites not only varied on accent, but they also varied on race. This was another um, consideration when we were choosing them. Um, and we have better data on this kind of thing than just sort of um, the historical, uh, well, asking teachers and the, the sort of history of the towns. Um, these little pie charts are made up from the most recent um, data um, from the census 2010. Kanarana, as you can see, is very mixed race, um, about half non-white, um, whereas Cachoeira, the majority, um, well, the uh, small minority are, are, are white. Um, Ulianopo is very similar, and Jauru more similar to Kanarana. So we have this kind of four-way, four, two-dimension, four times that we can compare in terms of accent and skin color preferences. <coughs> and this is a, yeah, sort of depicts what you typically see in these towns. So this is Cachoeira, um, and this is Jauru. And these are our gorgeous puppets that we used in, in this particular experiment. So again, everything exactly the same apart from changing skin color and in uh, the eye color in this case and the hair. And we have three colors as compared with the two of, of the Kinsler studies. <coughs> most of our, if you look at the whole population, most of our participants um, were, I'm going to call them brown. I mean, locally they'll say pardo. I'll call them brown, black. Um, and, and then white, but most of our locals, um, our participants were white, uh, brown, sorry. Um, <coughs> we had silent trials, as in the Kinsler studies, me measuring their skin colour preference in this, just in this sharing round, so not the selfish one, we got nothing from that before, um, and the friendship. And this time we had six trials per um, measure. So comparing, it was two-way contrast, so white and black, and white and brown, so on. And then we also had voice trials with a different group of participants in which we systematically varied skin colours and accents across um, these repeated trials. Okay, so this is the bit that's um, really new to me, so still sort of making sense of it. Um, um, First of all, before term started, and I got a bit of help with this, I have to say, with someone back in the MPI, we ran um, an analysis that looked at the effects <coughs> of various dimensions here, including the puppet's accent, um, the racial environment of the child, the accent environment, whilst being able to measure and control for things like the participant's age, skin, colour, and then looking at interactions between the accent and the environments in which the children were raised. And so we ran all these analyses and we got our sort of results suggesting that there's definitely something across, going on across these different trials. So we ran them separately for black and white contrast, um, for the black and brown contrast, and for the brown and white contrast. <coughs> um, but it, none of this really told us descriptively what's going on. So this is what I tried to do um, over the weekend. And so I'm going to present some data that isn't perfectly presented for those of you. Um, who know you'll see that there are missing error bars and so on. Um, I just didn't get that far in, in my presentation. Um, so I'll just present the friendship trials first, <coughs> silent and voiced. So here we have, in the, so we have black versus white, black versus brown, and brown versus white, and there are two trials of each of these contrasts. And so this is a mean of just two trials. And here we have the percentage um, preference for black and then the percentage reference for white. 
And you can see, so on the top it's generally the lighter colour. You can see there's a, a lighter preference overall, but it's particularly strong in the black versus white. And we can't say whether that's a white preference or a black dispreference. Um, could be both, <coughs> but it's particularly strong there. And then if we look just separately at the, con at the comparison of local <coughs> and non-local um, across these different um, contrasts, Overall, we see perhaps a local preference, but it's not as strong as the light preference, okay? So the skin color preferences seem to be stronger than the accent preferences, but there's still general um, basic preferences in both of these dimensions, I think. <coughs> okay, so this is the same chart again, just showing the percentages of the black, black, and brown. And then we have one trial for each participant where... Um, we have black local, for example, in the black versus white comparison, we have black local versus white non-local. So it's that sort of, if we pit the, two, pit the two against one another. So we have one trial each, so that's why these are frequencies and, and these are means of two trials, okay? Just to point that out. And so the question here is, does the local accent drag the preference up from what it was uh, in the pure colour silent trials? And we see... Overall, it does a little bit, but I don't see any really strong trumping action here. I don't see accent overriding um, the color preference across um, these different um, contrasts. In fact, it does look like the strongest race or skin color preference um, is perhaps the most robust as well. So it's less susceptible to what seems to be you know, an obvious but weird <coughs> local preference. It's less susceptible to that local accent preference. So this is cruel on the last day of term, isn't it? But maybe if you can make more sense of these than me, I'll be, I'll be very grateful. Um, sharing, then, <coughs> moving on from the friendship, similar um, layout here. Overall, the results, I think we're seeing a similar sort of trend, a similar sort of pattern in the sharing trials as we do in the, in the friendship trials, but it's probably a bit weaker. Um, and it's possible that the sharing setup is just a little bit more complicated for the children than a simple, question, simple answer to the question of who would you prefer to be friends with. So even with training, maybe it's just um, less intuitive. <coughs> um, and then we just compare again the non-local versus the local. And again, we see a, maybe a weak preference for the local um, overall. Um, does the local accent drag up? Does it override the color preference? We see a little bit of that, but not much. Okay, so black local versus white non-local, <coughs> black local versus brown non-local, and brown local versus white non-local. And then this is just a, just a couple, uh, couple of slides by, by sight. Here we see the strongest um, black dispreference or white preference of both um, in Cachoeira, and that's the racially and accent homogeneous site, so the one that was right up in the north. And that's where the strongest preference seems to be. And the other three sites, it's roughly around the same. And again, a similar sort of design. It seems that in, perhaps in Canarana, which is the heterogeneous on both dimensions, accent and race, or skip, yeah, race, um, that we're hitting near 50% up from 34%. But again, um, no trumping. And very similar then again with the with the sharing. Um, 
this is um, an earlier contrast that I ran. So if you just look at all the trials here, I'm not comparing. I'm not comparing um, black with white and brown with white. But if you just lump all to get together all the, the choices for white non-local, so potentially white non-local against brown local or, or black locals, all the choices for white non-local and all the choices for black local. So just that strongest color preference contrast. And we look across the different site types, and we compare the results across the color of the participant. So each participant that took part in the study, I asked my assistant, which of the puppets would you say the participant matches best, the black or the brown or the white? And so we had a sort of a census of our own for our participants. And so overall, I wouldn't really consider these too carefully because we have fairly small sample sizes, but if we just look at the brown participants, in the friendship trial, we see that um, the monorace sites stick with their white preference um, in so white non-local over black local. So that's the brown children in the monorace sites. But we see an opposite um, trend among the brown children in the multi-race sites. So their race preference or their skin color preference seems to be less robust in the face of a local accent versus non-local accent overlay. Um, so where, perhaps where white people are less common, they're more valuable in a way, or they're valued more highly, if you like, um, than where they're more common. And this just shows that actually the two sites are the same in the silent trials and show a strong white preference, but when you add the accent, it shifts. And interestingly, you don't get this interaction at all in the sharing trials. So again, it could just be that the sharing trials don't pick up the signals strongly because they're a bit more complicated. Or it could be that friendship and sharing elicit different kinds of um, social preferences in children. The kind of person I want to get into a relationship with as a friend might be different, if you like, to the kind of relationship I want to get into with an individual on, as a sort of trade or exchange kind of sharing um, on, a, on a sharing basis. So just to sum up, that's the, those are the only two studies I'm going to talk about, so I'm nearly there. Um, children sharing preferences, uh, friendship preferences seem to be guided by both skin colour and accent. Um, overall, skin colour preferences are modulated but not overridden by local accented preferences, I would say. Um, across sites, skin colour preferences are less robust in racially heterogeneous sites. Accent, another way of putting this, is that accents seem to have greater impact in these um, racially heterogeneous sites than in racially homogeneous sites. And it has the greatest impact in Panorama, which is multi-heterogeneous on both dimensions. Um, it appears to trump skin color, at least there's, there's more trumping um, among the part of participants of the racially heterogeneous sites than those of the racially homogeneous sites. And it's only in the friendship trials, but not in the sharing trials, which show no preference either way. Um, and then final sort of discussion point, the priority of accent over skin colour may not be a necessary component of early developing social cognition. Children's sensitivities to skin colour and accent vary according to racial and linguistic environmental conditions. I think that's what that shows. So socially contingent, contingent cooperation. Conti so cooperation that's contingent on social cues are, is the sensitivity to social cues um, contingent itself on the environment in which children develop. 
Um, I think there's a lot of questions that emerge from this research. I don't even, I, I'm not sure that these are um, perfectly com comparable traits. Um, so for comparability with what's being done as the precedent in the literature, I've looked at skin color and accent. But of course, skin color is a familiar dimension to our participants. We've used black, brown, and white, which are familiar to them in their school, um, in their school context, in their everyday life. Whereas the accents that we've used um, are a familiar accent and a non-familiar accent. So presumably there are ways in which we could perhaps um, uh, make the two traits equivalent. Um, how does this white bias that we see across the population that isn't predominantly white, how does it square with cell similarity accounts? Well, it seems to me that we need to consider, of course, the local meanings that are tied to accent and race and skin colour, um, and how these influence children's developing preferences. So beyond the sort of mere exposure to different colours and different accents in their environment, race means something. And we know that racial varieties, um, sort of um, education opportunities, employment opportunities, all kinds of um, sort of socioeconomic variables seem to be carved up or correlate very strongly with racial varieties in Brazil. Um, and so there could be what's called um, in this literature um, a sort of status effect or a prestige effect um, of the white, that the white people have. <clears throat> okay, so by going beyond more mere exposure effects, I mean, we've got to get um, you know, more ethnography, um, got to hang out with these kids more, to see how these things kind of work out on the playground. Um, and I think this is quite a cute one where, you know, if we could even just observe sharing, real-world sharing incidences as well and really code for this kind of thing and look across different skin colour um, uh, boundaries and also accent boundaries and see what we can see. Um, or measure. Um, and ultimately, is, is this, um, do we have support for sort of developmental specialization and social preferences being supported here? Um, or is this kind of racial variation, going back to the earlier theoretical point, is this kind of racial variation um, uh, sort of unique in the context of human history? It's very salient, um, but it's ultimately an evolutionary novelty. So in its absence, maybe accent would just be stronger. Um, I'm out of time, right? It's been about an hour, I think. Well, um, there's, a little, there's a little bit of flexibility. <laughs> a little bit of flexibility. Um, I, I, I'd just like to make a few more points to sort of sum up the grander theoretical issues. Um, uh, I think accent is interesting, and I focus on accent because that's what's being sort of put out there in the literature, but I think there's probably more than this, and accent could work together with other cues in guiding assortment, um, reliable cues as well that together perhaps become more reliable than they might do individually. And uh, Cecilia Hayes, who's based in All Souls here, a psychologist, um, she's recently written uh, a book chapter called What Can Imitation Do for Cooperation? And she talks about um, uh, imitation sort of beyond uh, even these uh, very sophisticated vocal imitation capacities that humans have. Um, for example, the imitation, the bodily imitation um, that yields um, sort of non-random population sort of group variability in gates, um, the ways in which we fiddle with our hair in a certain way or use facial expressions that might be minutely different from other groups. Um, the, in many cases, these distinctive features can't be consciously detected and therefore can't be copied um, via a process that depends on conscious, conscious rational calculation. Um, these bait behaviours are learned by observation without awareness um, and in fact when we try through you know, sort of rational, deliberate, conscious efforts to copy them, we end up sort of miserably caricaturing them. 
Um, and it's only through exposure to them and imitation um, that we can acquire them. And frequency of observation, which yields this um, capacity um, to copy the behaviours, is likely to co-vary with time spent in the company of the group. Um, and this is a fair indicator of genuine group membership. And it's also important, perhaps, to note that similarity mechanisms may interact with kin selection mechanisms. You know, people who are more similar to me may be more likely to be part of my kin group. Um, people who are more similar to me, perhaps I can have just simply more harmonious, um, more coordinated interactions with them. Um, I can predict their behaviour better. Might be wrong, but on the whole, maybe as a rule of thumb, I can predict their behaviour better. Um, and perhaps also reputation mechanisms and reciprocity. So um, perhaps someone who's very similar to me, I may not know them. Um, I may not know entirely if they're going to cooperate with me, but if I don't cooperate with them, word could get around to people who do know me, because we're all sort of part of the same group. So it'll be interesting to see if rather than tags, these kinds of tags or similarity measurements, guiding sort of costly, beneficial behavior toward others, whether actually just inhibits um, sort of betrayal um, or defection toward others, because you're a bit nervous that you might get punished from elsewhere for this behavior. The word will get around. So there might be ways in which these mechanisms work together, interestingly. But ultimately, the story here is that imitation in various forms enhances similarity, and similarity enhances cooperation. Vague statement. Um, and so we need to think in terms of the theory, what are the evolutionary roots of the established link between um, these things, imitation, similarity, and cooperation? Um, what are the differences, really? How can we account for um, the fact that ephemeral similarity cues, um, as is being observed extensively in social psychology literature on imitation, if we imitate um, deliberately the movements, the bodily movements of, of, of other individuals, insofar as they don't detect what you're doing, um, this can establish a, a relationship of um, in, enhanced rapport and cooperation among in, uh, between two individuals. And the same thing with behavioral synchrony. Got there. <laughs> so if you enhance similarity, potentially, through synchronous behavior, so drumming together or rowing together or marching together, dancing together, and, and thereby enhance similarity, and there's some, some research that would suggest that the route between synchrony and cooperation goes through similarity perception, then that just seems a little bit too easy. It's no longer a reliable marker if you can just do it by copying other people at will. So how do these things um, go together? It looks like I've got two completely kind of mutually um, um, incompatible research programs going on here. Um, that's this is a bigger question, I don't know if I want to get into it, but does this selection, um, assorting with other people who are like us, sort of naturally re lead to groups? Um, or does it take additional mechanisms, such as ecological barriers and sort of um, social uh, cognitive um, categorization processes, self-enforcing stereotypes? This is an accent map of the Netherlands. And although there aren't really sort of very sharp boundaries, there are certainly accent areas here. So it's not perfect kind of continuous dimension. But this is really fascinating um, techniques now coming out of dialectometry on how to measure accent variation um, using multidimensional scaling and color maps. Um, and how do similarity cues for these tags become group norms and conventions? How do social markets become conventions? This is the way we do it. It's not just the way we do it, it's the way it should be done. 
Um, <clears throat> so thank you to um, my, the PI on our project, Daniel Hahn, Andresa Barbosa in Brazil, and the teachers and the staff and parents and authorities, and the pupils and students of the schools we worked in. Thank you for listening. <laughs>